Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community practicing the way of Jesus and thirsting for the life He gives. Good morning, church. How are y'all doing? Y'all get to enjoy the sunshine at all? Yes. I, not you, Justin? Well, maybe this upcoming week you'll be able to. Uh, I got to enjoy the sunshine a little bit. I worked at the farmer's market yesterday, so that was really nice. You get to see a lot of friendly faces. I always encourage Zia to come and hang out with me because the way that I kind of rope her into that is I tell her there's lots of dogs there, Zia, that you'll get to say hello to. But I was a little glad to see the rain this morning. Anyone else? I'm not always really glad to see the rain, but it just felt uh, like refreshing. I don't know. Maybe it was like the, week, the last week, several weeks have been a little bit like chaotic. And I was like, oh, the, the rain is like a nice like ref- reminder of God's blessing and, and refreshing in my life that I, I needed this morning. Um, and today we're continuing our series, uh, Joseph's Journey. That's taking place through the chapters uh, 37 to 50, the book of Genesis. And we're looking at Joseph's life. And last week, Adam covered chapter 41. And today, we're going to be covering a series of events that happen from chapter 42 to 45. So, four chapters. So, today's sermon is going to be about an hour and 45 minutes. So, I hope you packed a lunch today. Um, but if you're taking notes, or if not, and you, and you just want, you're like, Ian, I really want a title for this morning's sermon. Y'all want the title for this morning's sermon? The title for today's sermon is The Art of Weeping. So Abby prayed that I would be full of joy today while I preach to you, and here I am, ready to give you a sermon titled The Art of Weeping. Joseph's journey takes many twists and turns over many years, and in today's chapters, we're going to see that things are actually starting to look up for Joseph. He's come a long way from the 17-year-old boy we were introduced to in chapter 37, who uh, was betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery and then wrongfully imprisoned. He's come a long way from there. Things are finally starting to look up. And while Joseph's life, uh, his circumstances, his situation, they, they appear, as we see in chapter 42, to be going better than ever, we see that Joseph's internal life is not without difficult and at times heart-wrenching emotion, and there are many tears along the way, and we're actually going to read about some of that today. And, And it's my hope that by the end of this morning's sermon, it's my hope that by the end of it, we'll have begun to wrestle with two questions, uh, which I believe I have for you as a slide as well. It's my hope that by the end of this morning's sermon, we'll have begun the process of wrestling with questions because uh, we believe here at Church at the Well that the sermon is not the last word on a topic, but a good sermon is actually the first word. So we like to leave you with questions here. And the questions are, what am I weeping for? Uh, So by the end of this morning, hopefully we'll have begun to wrestle with that. And is there anything that my heart longs to weep for that needs to be brought to the surface? When we wrapped up last week, we saw a turn in the life of Joseph, the dreamer, chapter 41. He'd been wrongfully imprisoned, and we read 
that he's ended up in a situation where he's invited by Pharaoh to interpret his dream because Pharaoh has heard Joseph has this ability to interpret dreams. And Joseph tells Pharaoh, this is what Joseph says of his dream. He says, there's going to be seven years of plenty. This is what your dream means. And then there's going to be seven years of famine. But we read that not only does Joseph interpret his dream, but Joseph tells him what to do with it. He says, you're going to need to prepare. That's why you've been given this dream. You're going to need to prepare, and you're going to need to appoint someone who is wise, who will kind of be in charge of preparing for this famine, who, um, this famine which is to come. And Pharaoh uh, says he, he sets out like a search committee, and he ends up appointing Joseph uh, from a prisoner to stu- a steward and a ruler in Egypt, and he's given the authority and the power to kind of oversee the preparation of um, storing up for the famine. And so that's where we left off in the story in chapter 41, and that's where we're coming to in chapter 42. Now, I joke, I jest, we're not going to have an hour and 45-minute long sermon, and because we are not, we're not going to have time to read the bulk of the four chapters, but as we go through Um, we're going to just kind of overview the chapters as we kind of explore and unpack what happens next. And to set the stage uh, for the the, uh, passage that I really want to land on this morning, um, I'd like to just give us a brief overview of what happens. Is that okay? Amazing. Okay, chapter 42. In chapter 42, things fast forward, the story fast forward, and the severe famine which Joseph predicted, um, is happening. And the narrator brings us back. There's a change of setting from the story where we have been from chapter 39 to 41, which has been in Egypt. There's a change in setting, and the narrator brings us back to Canaan and Joseph's family in Canaan. And we learn that the famine is severe there also. It's not only in Egypt, but it's... Um, it's essentially um, everywhere that would have been the known world at the time to Joseph. And we, so we learn that the famine is severe, and there are rumors that make their way back to Canaan that there's grain in Egypt, that there's grain that has been stored up in Egypt. And so Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to buy grain, but he requests that his youngest son, Benjamin, remain with him. So Benjamin stays with Jacob, and since Joseph was the one who was in charge of dispersing goods at the time during the famine, his brothers find their way back to their brother Joseph. And so there is a reunion. Yet, their their brothers are not aware yet that it is Joseph. Um, And so They find themselves before them, and they bow in respect as they request to purchase food. So Jacob has sent them to purchase food and bring it back home. And there's this moment where the narrator tells us that Joseph recognizes them, where he recognizes them. So this is a big moment, right, in the Joseph story. Can we agree that this is a big moment? It's a reunion of sorts, and yet there's not this full... Revealing it's also this big moment in 
the dream that Joseph had in the very beginning in chapter 37 is partially fulfilled here. The dream in which his brothers bow down to him. Joseph tells his brothers this dream for some reason and they hate him for it and they betray him. And uh, this could be a moment where uh, Joseph is like, uh, I gotcha. And see, I told you this would come true. And a moment for vindiction for him. But we read in the text that he disguises himself from them and speaks harshly to them. He accuses them of being spies. It's an interesting accusation. And from there, his brothers are imprisoned for three days. And it's interesting as you read the text, as I read it, it's almost like Joseph is buying time here. Like he's trying to figure out what to do. How is he going to respond? What is he going to do in this moment? Um, so he's like buying time. Chapter 41, uh, we read, things ended good. We even learned that Joseph had two sons at the end of chapter 41, and he named them Manasseh and Ephraim. And Ephraim is interesting. Ephraim means fruitfulness, and Manasseh means to forget. So he names his son, one of his sons, to forget. And the narrator tells us why Joseph did that. He says this, that Joseph chose that name because God made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. And here in chapter 42, uh, we learn that that's not quite the case. The past has a way of finding its way back to the surface in our lives, doesn't it? Unresolved pain has a way of finding its way back to the surface of our lives, doesn't it? Anyone know what I'm talking about? And so Joseph comes up with a plan, and I put plan in my notes in parentheses because I'm not quite sure what it is to test his brothers. Um, they told him that they were 10 of 12 brothers, which was true, and that there was only 10 of them because their one brother, Benjamin, had remained with their father, and their other, um, Joseph, whom they believed to be dead. That's why he wasn't with them, because their other brother was dead. And Joseph, this is Joseph's plan. He says, I'm going to keep your brother Simeon with me, and while you bring grain back to your land, but I want you to return with the other brother, just to tell me that you're being honest. Again, I think Joseph's trying to figure out what's going on. He probably, uh, this is maybe a dysfunctional way of him trying to see his brother Benjamin as well. I'm not quite sure. But after Joseph instructs this, we read this, and this is in chapter two, verse, or chapter 42, verses 21. We read this, then they said to one another, this is Joseph's brothers, truly we are guilty concerning our brother, speaking of Joseph, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, when we betrayed him and threw him into a pit, right? Yet we would not listen, therefore this distress has come upon us. They're like, we are cursed. This is, why, this, this is why we're facing this difficult moment right there. And then Reuben answered them saying, did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy and you would not listen? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. Verse 23, they did not know, however, that Joseph understood for there was an interpreter between them. And Joseph he turned away from them and wept. And so Joseph hears this kind of contrite 
uh, a conversation between his brothers, and he's moved to tears. It's almost like he doesn't kind of know what to do with this emotion that's welling up from them. He turned away from them and wept. All of Joseph's emotions come rushing to the surface. Now, I would presume that there's probably not one of us who reads that and think, Joseph, man, what a crybaby. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think we can kind of understand that, uh, that emotion that Joseph is feeling there. And yet, while none of us would probably say or think or feel something like that, wow, Joseph, what a crybaby, I would also guess that weeping and sadness are not always emotions that we intentionally interact with, especially ones that we might consider um, alongside our spirituality or our spiritual formation. Maybe we even consider emotions like weeping and sadness negative or bad. Maybe at times, maybe even unknowingly, we consider emotions like that ungodly. But what if we asked questions of our weeping instead of dismissing it or suppressing it? What if we did that? Uh, a few years ago, I read a book by a uh, psychology professor at Harvard. Her name is Susan David, and she wrote a book called Emotional Agility. And I'll get to that quote in just a moment, but before I do, I'd just like to explain the, the general premise of the book, uh, Emotional Agility, and I'll just read from kind of the premise, uh, which is that emotional agility is a process that enables us to navigate life's twists and turns with self-acceptance, clear-sightedness, and an open mind. The process isn't about ignoring difficult emotions and thoughts, it's about holding these emotions and thoughts loosely, facing them courageously and compassionately, and then moving past them to ignite change in your life. And then she writes this. Uh, when you feel a strong, tough emotion, don't race for the emotional exits. Learn its contours. Show up to the journal of your hearts. I love that. That's in my book. That line is instantly underlined. She's, she writes this, showing up means facing into your thoughts, emotions, behaviors willingly with curiosity and kindness. So what if we held our sadness, our weeping, and we asked questions of it instead, faced it, uh, as Susan David writes, with curiosity and kindness, and what if we invited God's spirit to shape us and form us in that process, in our emotions? Uh, there is another uh, psychologist, Dan Allender, Dr. Dan Allender, who wrote a book with Dr. Tremper Longman III, and I got this quote from Abby, so you can thank Abby for it, uh, who they wrote a book called The Cry of the Soul, um, where this is where this quote comes from. But they write this about that process of then kind of taking that general concept of emotional agility and then also integrating that into our lives of faith as well. Ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality, and reality 
is where we meet with God. I love that. Again, it's underlined instantly. When Joseph weeps here in chapter 42, what if instead of wondering if it's a good emotion or a bad emotion, we asked why Joseph is weeping? What does it tell us about Joseph's values and who he is? Which is, of course, a question you're welcome to respond to, and I hope you would. Um, What does this tell us about Joseph, his values? What does this tell us about who Joseph is? What do you think? That he loves his brothers. Yeah. I'd say so. And anything else? He's courageous enough to weep. Mm-hmm. Anything else jump out to you? What does this tell us about Joseph? Who he is, what he values, what he longs for? Reality in God? Yeah. Restoration. Yeah, maybe he's maybe he's like realizing that in the moment. Maybe it was something he he thought he wanted to forget, and uh, he's kind of realizing it in this moment. What if our emotions are guideposts and signs to who we long to become? What if we invited God into that process? Chapter 42 continues. Joseph sends his brothers back, minus Simeon, to Canaan with grain, and he seek, it says he, we learn that he secretly returns their money into their luggage, which creates a whole fiasco. You can, I encourage you to read through these chapters because they're incredibly moving and well-written. So he returns the money to their luggage, and this eventually distresses his brothers, and they're worried that they're going to be taken for thieves. And when they return to Canaan, they report everything to their father and how they need to return with Benjamin to Egypt if they're ever going to get their brother Simeon back and more food to survive the famine. But Jacob is reluctant because he's already lost Joseph. Now he's facing the prospect of having most likely lost his son Simeon. And the prospect of losing any more children is unbearable to Jacob. And chapter 42 ends with this Jacob saying of Benjamin. He says, If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then my gray then you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. This is a man who has been grieving his son for many years and basically saying, if I lose Benjamin, if I lose another son, I think it will kill me. I think I'm going to die from grief. Chapter 43, uh, we read that the famine gets even worse and Jacob eventually relents and sends his sons back to Egypt with Benjamin, but he sends them with gifts for Joseph, who's yet to be revealed as his son, which is alive, and he instructs his sons to bring back the money, which was returned to them. So go with double the amount of money that you need to buy food and bring back. And actually think that this is a wise move on Jacob's part, and it's actually full of integrity. It's kind of a side note, but I wonder, just briefly, uh, maybe that's where Joseph got some of his wisdom from from his father. Uh, When they arrive uh, to Egypt, his brothers, they're terrified of Joseph because they're worried that he knew or was going to find out that their money had been returned to him. 
and they tell him about the money in their sacks. They, they confess, even though they didn't take the money, it just was there. And Joseph replies, be at ease, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money, it's fine, it's all good. And it's, it's all, almost as if I think Joseph still is here like wrestling with what to do, deciding how to respond, how to treat his brothers. But I think we're beginning to see the way in which he's leaning, the direction he's leaning in. His brothers are invited to a meal at Joseph's house. Again, they're still kind of skeptical, but they, they have to go with it here. They're, they're already in Egypt. And it's here that Joseph sees his brother Benjamin for the first time. And Benjamin, uh, as a note, was his only full brother. The rest of his, half, the rest of his brothers were half-brothers. And so I think there's this... Um, connection there between Benjamin and Joseph. And we read this when Joseph sees his brother Benjamin for the first time. As he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph hurried out for he was deeply stirred over his brother and sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and he wept there. Then he washed his face, came out, he controlled himself, and said, serve the meal. And they shared a feast together, yet none of them were aware that it was their brother, Joseph. Have any of you been in a moment like that before? It's just, that's uh, relatable. He had to just control himself. Uh, I'll, share, I'll share a brief story with you. In uh, 2010, I was working at a fine establishment as a, a server, so the Longhorn Steakhouse in Williston. And uh, I got a call, or no, I got a text from a family member that um, my uncle, who had been sick, he was dying. And he, he, was, act he was in the pro process of actively dying. And so I had one opportunity during my shift to go to the back room and say goodbye over the phone. Uh, which I did, and uh, there in dry goods or whatever corner I could find in the back of the restaurant, I wept, and then I washed my face, control myself, and uh, served the meal, just like Joseph did. Um, and, I, and I imagine that there are more than me in this room who understands what it's like to have to kind of be in a, a moment like that where you're feeling these deep, uh, heart-wrenching emotions, and you got to control yourself and get back to business, right? Chapter 44. Joseph uh, decides to test his brothers again, comes up with another plan. I have no idea. I'm not going to try and interpret what's going on in Joseph's heart. This time, he hides a cup of his in his brother's belongings. Specifically, he hides it in... Benjamin's uh, luggage, and he sends them off. And we're told that he does this so he can accuse them of stealing from him. And Joseph sent his workers to accuse and capture them and bring them back. And everyone is stressed out, and uh, they, have, they find the cup in Benjamin's baggage, and he says, you're going to have to pay a penalty for this now, uh, you're, he's taken as a thief, and he's going to be sentenced to slavery in Joseph's household. 
So, weeping Joseph again, I don't know what's going on in Joseph's heart. I think there's a lot of things going on in Joseph's heart. Perhaps Joseph wanted to be with his brother Benjamin, and this was his oddly dysfunctional way of making it happen. I don't know. Uh, And Judah, uh, one of the brothers, reports to Joseph what their father told them before they sent Benjamin there. They know what's going to happen if uh, this happens to Benjamin. We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother. This is the, this is the only child of Rachel, Jacob's wife. And his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And chapter 44 ends with Judah and the brothers requesting to take the penalty for Benjamin instead to spare the sorrow of their father. Think of the contrast for a moment. A favored son in chapter 37, we encounter Joseph, the favored son, and his brothers filled with jealousy and bitterness at this reality, um, and they betray him, and they throw him in a pit to die or to be sold into slavery. Think of just for a moment the growth his brothers have taken now. And perhaps Joseph is beginning to see this in his brothers, who are now, they're facing the same situation, a favored son, right? A favored son who is loved by their father, um, and they have an opportunity to save their own skin. And they choose a quite different path. Would you agree? So we turn to chapter 45, and we're getting to the section I'd like for us to focus on, where we're going to explore this theme a little bit more closely and kind of wrap up. Um, And it's already been hinted at in the previous chapters, but it really comes into focus here in chapter 45. And so can we read what happens next? And this will be the last portion that we read today. Um, And this is the very beginning of 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself. He couldn't keep it together before all those who stood before him. And he cried, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. They're worried for their lives because Joseph has status and authority and the power of Egypt behind him. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve 
God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and a ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen. You're going to move closer. And you shall be near me and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you. For there are still five years of famine to come. And you and your household and all that you have will be impoverished. Behold your eyes, see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin, see that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. If we're to adapt uh, Joseph's journey to a screenplay. This is the climactic moment of the film. Breathtaking, right? Let's, let's briefly consider how Joseph is formed as he's weeping. What he's awakening to as he weeps. First, he likely realized that God was at work in his brother's lives. Not just his own. He gets to witness firsthand the growth that they have gone through from their jealous betrayal of their father's favorite son. Um, and then he witnesses their willingness to sacrifice themselves for the good of Benjamin and for their father's well-being. Second, as Joseph weeps, Joseph declares this. We, we just read this. He, he declares this, God sent me. It was all a part of the plan. God sent me to preserve life to preserve for you a remnant. I see it now. God sent me and made me father, Lord, and a ruler in Egypt. I think this, I, I'm, not sh I'm not quite sure Joseph understood that God was at work in his life until this moment. I think that Joseph's awakened to all of the ways in which God has been at work as he weeps, as he weeps. And I want you to know this morning, it's okay to feel however you are feeling. It's okay. I think it's easy to feel guilty about grief and sadness and some of the more difficult, heart-wrenching emotions in our lives. Um, and church should probably be the very last place where you experience that as well. So I just want to give you permission to feel however you're feeling. Uh, uh, a few years ago, I lost a, a very close uh, friend of mine from college, and, and I, have, I felt a lot of um, difficulty in my own life, um, grieving around that scenario because uh, he was around my same age. He had two children as well, uh, two young children, and it was just kind of an unbearable thing for me uh, to think about the grief that his family was experiencing. And so I had a really hard time grieving because um, I felt guilty about it. Because I was like, who am I to grieve in this scenario when their grief is so much more than mine? That's a false narrative. That was a false narrative 
that I was carrying around. And so I think it's important to say to one another, to each other, um, that it's okay to feel however you are feeling. Back to the questions we began with this morning. What am I weeping for? Is there anything that my heart longs to weep for that needs to be brought to the surface? Can I share one last story with you? Um, Tomorrow I'm actually heading to Honduras. I'm going to be on a plane at like 6 in the morning. So pray for me that I can get some sleep tonight. Um, So I'm headed to Honduras. My last trip to Honduras was in 2019. I had a flight scheduled in March of 2020, and I didn't make it uh, onto that flight because this thing happened. Maybe you heard of it. You guys know what I'm talking about? This thing happened in March 2020, Um, and so I wasn't able to go. So my last trip was in uh, 2019, and uh, it was awesome. I, uh, uh, other than working here at Church of the Wall, one of my other jobs is to uh, find coffee. Find, oh, so I was in coffee land, finding coffee, and hanging out on farms. And one of my favorite things to do in coffee lands is to find some folks to go and play a game of soccer with. And uh, so I did, and I was having this amazing game. And uh, during the game, I, halftime or while I was taking a break or something like that, I checked my phone, and I had a text from my wife's aunt. And I was like, that is the strangest thing, a text from my wife's aunt, who's probably never texted me. She probably had to find my phone number um, to get to me. And my wife had been visiting uh, her grandmother and her family in Messina, New York. And right before we had left, um, we had recently found out that uh, Luann was pregnant. And we had an... uh, an ultrasound, and the ultrasound was like this weird, inconclusive ultrasound. It was supposed to be the one where like you hear your baby's heartbeat for the first time, um, and we didn't. And so it was just kind of like this mystery thing, and then I had to go to Honduras. Um, and I got this call um, that Luann was having, uh, so I got on the phone, with Luann's aunt, and I got a call that Luann was having a miscarriage. Um, And not only was she having a miscarriage, but she had to be hospitalized because of it. Um, She had lost a lot of blood, and it was uh, a a very scary situation, to say the least. And I mind you, um, in rural, very rural Honduras, in the mountains, not near an airport or anything, and I was scheduled to fly out the next day, probably on the earliest flight out of Honduras anyway, so I wasn't, um, I wasn't, uh, you know, looking or clamoring to find a plane, because I think I had the next plane out of Honduras. Anyways, and yet I was in this very kind of delicate place where I'm uh, not able to be there for Luann uh, physically, and uh, incredibly worried, and then... Like, long, like in the back of Longhorn Steakhouse, have to go back to my soccer game. I'm wrestling with these really deep, heart-wrenching emotions, and everyone's having a really great time. 
So I kept it to myself. Um, I didn't stop the game. Went back out there, played the rest of the game. Uh, had some late night jovial conversations with the folks I was with before going to bed. And flying back to, uh, back to Vermont. The art of weeping uh, starts with giving yourself permission to feel whatever it is that you're feeling. Uh, and from there, as you're able um, to invite God into that process. And that's something I had to come to in that moment. And I wasn't able to actually begin the process um, towards healing and wholeness until I set aside intentional time where I was engaging my emotions, my grief, my sadness, um, those difficult, heart-wrenching moment, uh, emotions uh, with intentionality and holding them before God. Um, and from there, uh, as you start with that step, just permission, feel whatever it is that you're feeling, uh, as you are able to invite God into that process, um, can you lean in the direction of God as you weep. This doesn't mean you've got it all together. This doesn't mean that you're a spiritual legend if you can figure out how to lean in the direction of God in your weeping. It could just be the slightest lean. I have a graphic for you. I drew this. I'm not going to show it at the open mic. <laughs> I wish my kids were here because they would be teasing me right now. Um, they're in kids' church. Um, and this is something that a, a professor of mine had talked about once when he talked about having pressure in your life or difficult situations. And if, as pressure comes down on your life from above, all you need is the slightest lean to be pushed in one direction. And to me, this is a beautiful image. This is not a beautiful image. This concept is a beautiful image because as we read the Joseph story, there's no record to me of Joseph the prayer warrior or jo of Joseph as a man of devotion. But in Joseph's journey, what we do see is someone who leans. And at times, if ever so slightly in the direction where God is able to speak to him and to shape him. And when Joseph weeps, we see him land in the arms of his brothers as they are reconciled. And even more, we see him awakened to the ways at which God has been at work in his life. Can I leave you with one last thought today? Uh, even more import important then inviting God into our weeping is coming to the realization that God weeps with you and that God weeps on your behalf. And I won't preach a sermon on that, but in Jesus, God reveals himself as one who weeps with us. And I'm going to leave you with an excerpt from uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones' The Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a children's Bible, which I read to my kids at home. Uh, and I love it because it's so simple. Um, and we're going to start here at the end. And this is at the end of, of uh, Joseph's story. And this beautiful thing that uh, Sally does is she kind of 
uh, ties in these Old Testament narratives into the larger narrative of Scripture. One day, God would send another prince, a young prince whose heart would break. Like Joseph, he would leave his home and his father. His brothers would hate him and want him dead. He would be sold for pieces of silver. He would be punished even though he had done nothing wrong. But God would use everything that happened to this young prince, even the bad things, to do something good, to forgive the sins of the world. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Joseph and this story, which invites us to engage how you might be at work in our own lives, perhaps how you might be at work in our weeping, in our sadness, God. So we pray that uh, we would be able to hold those things without judgment, without suppression, without uh, fear of, uh, or shame in how we feel, God, but that we would be able to hold them before you. We pray that your spirit would give us the courage to face those emotions with compassion and kindness. And we'd ask that we would have the strength to lean, if ever so slightly, in a direction in which you are able to shape us and form us into the person you hope we would become. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You're listening to the official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at www.wellchurchvt.com.